If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Thanks for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For our listeners in London, we've got a lot of events coming up this autumn. We're going to be debating everything from Ian Fleming versus John le Carre to veganism with A.A. Gill and George Monbiot. You can find out about all our events and sign up to our newsletter at our website, intelligencesquared.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Now, here's the podcast. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Royal Institution uh, for tonight's exciting debate on whether pornography is good for us. My name is Viv Groskop, and I'm going to be chairing tonight's debate. So our motion for tonight is porn is good for us. Without it, we would be a more repressed society. So with that in mind, let us say hooray for porn. Where would we be without it? Bored, repressed, frustrated. Porn lights up the lives of the depressed, the lonely, and the sexually unadventurous. It spices up dull marriages. It brings excitement to relationships. It tells us where to look and where to touch. On the other hand, is Pornland really such a nice place to be? Far from nailing a lie, isn't porn selling a lie? that women are always eager and willing to engage in extreme practices, that bodies are always tanned and buffed, breasts always pert, orgasms always explosive. And to attract the restless voyeur, internet porn in particular is having to up the ante. Cybersex is getting ever harsher, more degrading, more extreme. What kind of a warped, desensitized view of human intimacy does this offer up to our children? So, great liberator of the libido or a blight on our intimate lives. Tonight, we'll hear from a pornographic filmmaker, a renowned addiction therapist, and two academic experts on both sides of the argument. So, let me then welcome our first speaker for the motion. She's a pornographic film director who works under the pseudonym Anna Spann. She runs a campaign site for erotic workers called www.weconsent.org, which campaigns against moral panics and anti-erotic industry legislation. Please welcome to, to the podium Anna Arrowsmith. At 16, I was a self proclaimed feminist who believed what mainstream feminists and politicians like Claire Short were saying, that porn degraded women. However, one day I was walking down Old Compton Street in London's red lights district and I realised that my anger was actually envy. I was envious of men having their sexuality catered for in so many different ways. 
from prostitution magazines to films, in the late 1980s, women's sexuality was not catered for at all. I knew then that it was far more productive and feminist to invest my time in creating something that allowed women to explore their sexuality than it was to thwart men's freedoms. Sexual objectification, that is, fleetingly seeing somebody for their sexually attractiveness alone, is something women do just as easily as men. It just isn't seen as socially acceptable for women. I now work as part of a burgeoning feminist and queer porn industry which is changing perceptions of sex on film. During my first degree, I read Jacques Lacan, whose work tells us that whatever gives you pleasure gives you power. This throws the traditional model of vertical power into question. Therefore, whatever interests you sexually is what you should practice, law willing. So if you're sexually submissive, you are disempowered if you do not admit this to yourself, as you deny yourself access to pleasure. To understand pornography, it's important to understand this point. Pornography is not the acting out of politics. Pornography is the acting out of the imagination and role play, which is only in part influenced by the wider gender arena. It is more useful to liken porn to a game or a sport than it is to everyday life. Porn stars and directors get power from expanding their um, limitations of their imaginations and bodily experiences. Anti-porn feminists make mistake extreme sex with a lack of consent. That is, they compare sex with the rest of social life. Imagine for a moment a thought experiment. In 1980, a prominent theorist on the subject of violence links professional boxing to street and domestic violence. He argues that men are watching boxing on the television and are acting out what they see on the streets. After all, it follows that these men want to be seen as similar to their boxing idols. In response to this concern, it is easy to argue that televised professional boxing adheres to certain legal and cultural rules which render it different from everyday violence. We watch boxing as violence in quotation marks. It's a sport, not real life. People still know it is wrong to physically attack someone in reality, even though they enjoy it as entertainment. Unfortunately for pornography, such a theorist did exist. Andrea Dworkin wrote that pornography led to rape and the retardation of women's equality in the workplace and home, even though extensive research into pornography and its negative effects has only ever presented highly inconclusive findings. Ever since Dworkin, we have been almost neurolinguistically programmed to link porn with rape because it's such an emotive issue and therefore a difficult link to shake. Such theorists see women as inevitable victims which in turn encourage women to see themselves as victims. It is this anti-porn feminism that gave men the power to taunt women with porn in offices and private lives as a tool which is mistakenly seen as shorthand for female disempowerment. This is not to say that there is no inequality in the porn industry. It is certainly the case that women are encouraged to play submissive roles in some films. But when people argue that the worst thing about porn is women are seen to be enjoying being raped or being abused, they effectively say that regardless of how much autonomy, education or will of personality a woman has, she cannot consent to being in or consuming porn or therefore to being anti-porn either. It's worth remembering at this point that independent research shows that 30% of all online porn is consumed by women. The anti-porn position is not based on expanding women's rights. It's a thinly veiled conservative and religious argument that firmly keeps women within the whore-Madonna dichotomy that most feminists and women have been fighting to escape for decades. 
Theirs is not a campaign to save women and children. Theirs is a fully-fledged moral panic as per Stanley Cohen's influential book, Folk Devils and Moral Panics. Using his theory, the porn producers have been chosen as a soft target for moral entrepreneurs, those who stand to gain the most from the panic, in order to project a whole host of society's ills onto one identifiable culprit that should be eliminated in order to magically deliver gender equality in this instance. We've been here before. In 1984, with the Video Recordings Act, when Mary Whitehouse stated that nearly 40% of all six-year-olds watch video nasties, journalists who found six-year-olds admitting to seeing films that did not exist easily refuted this. But now children are seen as victims in porn, especially girls who are apparently helpless in the face of sexualization, with no libido of their own. But do the facts support this concern? Well, in a new book, Becoming Sexual, Dr. Danielle Egan refutes all the common arguments. For instance, in the United Kingdom, America and Australia, it has been found that girls are waiting longer to lose their virginity than ever before. Pregnancy rates have dropped to the lowest rate in 30 years. Overwhelmingly, girls are experiencing their first sexual experience with a steady partner and are using contraception as condoms for the first time of... intercourse. By far the most frequent sexual experience by young people is self-masturbation, not boys receiving oral sex as is often claimed. Sexual abuse and physical abuse of children has significantly declined. Adolescent crime rates have also dropped as part of a trend that shows a 49% drop in all violent crime since 1995 in the UK. More girls are normal weight or overweight than underweight, and higher rates of women at age 18 as well as later in life are undertaking further and higher education than men. But this debate is focused on why the porn industry is good for society, so allow me to give you a few good reasons. Porn keeps couples together. It's common for one couple to have a higher sex one member of a couple have a higher sex drive than the other, usually the man, and pornography is one way for such people to sate their desires without resorting to breaking up the relationship, having affairs, paying for sex, or pestering their partners for sex. Unlike most mainstream TV and film, porn act- Pornography actually democratizes the body. There is a market for literally anything, as it is 50% of the industry is amateur, showing all types of physiques, although this is not shown when the industry is represented through the mainstream media that constantly promotes the pneumatic blonde stereotype, even though a recent longitudinal study showed that the average female porn star is 23-year-old brunette with a B-cup. I often say to women who don't like something about themselves, for instance, body hair or body size, stick it into a search engine and add the word porn next to it and you will find a whole host of sites that think this is the most attractive thing about you. (laughs) Pornography continually develops and popularises new technology, which we all owe a debt for. Pornography is a good vehicle for learning about the human body in the absence of decent sexual education. It is where most men learn where the clitoris, A-spot and G-spots are. The porn industry is organised around the women who perform in the films as they decide their limits and are hired on that basis. It's the only industry I know where a woman's period is a good reason to change a shoot date to suit. Being a mother, or indeed being pregnant, simply means you sell to a new and different market. (laughs) 
Compare this to the banking industry where women have to ignore their female traits and bodies in order to get on. A final positive I would argue is from my own perspective. Porn has been a hugely positive and exciting industry to work in that has expanded my knowledge of sex and human interaction immensely. One day I will be filming a buxom, no-nonsense nurse with their unwitting male patients and the next I'll be filming policemen and women in full gear going at it hammer and tongs. What can be wrong with that? My conclusion, it is important to be aware of moral panics, especially around the emotive subject of sexuality, which is always going to be exciting on some level. Please don't vote for an argument that says the world is going to hell in the handcart. It isn't. The world is just a complicated place in which civil liberties must be maintained and democracy respected. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anna Arrowsmith. So let us welcome now our first speaker against the motion. He's a leading expert on the treatment of addictive and compulsive behaviour. He's the founder of the UK's first addiction treatment centre and has worked with over 5,000 inpatients and many more outpatients from his South Kensington office. Patients suffering from a variety of difficulties, including addiction to sex and pornography. In 2009, he retired as a GP in order to focus on his addiction work. Please welcome to the podium Dr. Robert Lefebvre. <laughs> Politically, I'm a libertarian. I don't like rules and regulations affecting individuals. There are two caveats. The first is where it affects other people. If my freedom impinges on yours, that's wrong. And the second is rather more tricky. And that's where the person may not be competent to decide what is good or bad. And the obvious example of that is pornography with young children. The child is too young to make an adult decision, an awareness of what's happening. But in my particular field, I was a member of the board of the Libertarian Alliance. But I resigned from it because I recognize that with addiction, there's no liberty. We're trapped in our addiction. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's a compulsive behavior. Consequently, it's very important for us to be able to define what addiction really is, because this is not a small problem. Overall, it's estimated that something between 10 and 15% of the population have addiction problems. That's with alcohol or drugs or food or nicotine or gambling or whatever. So this means that each GP with an average list of 2,300 patients will have something in the order of 300 addicts to look after. And if the experience of today's medical students was any different from mine, I had not one single lesson in six years on addiction. And incidentally, as a GP, I had not one lesson on counselling either. So we're putting doctors into the front line to look after massive numbers of people with, with addiction. Um, an average GP will see four new cancers a year, will see one case of Crohn's disease every six years, will see one case of a pheochromocytoma every 200 years, but we'll have 300 addicts. We're doing work that we're not trained to do and we have no understanding of. 
So there's something very strange in medical education, which is where I put the blame. But where those of us who have addiction problems are concerned, it's more personally significant. We're compelled. We just don't know how to get out of it. Well, stop drinking. I tried. Well, try harder. I did. Well, do what I do. I can't. You know, there's no understanding of the trap that addicts are in. Therefore, it's vital for us to be able to define addiction and to see who it is who has the most likely problem. Because if the problem is as widespread as that, then we must be able to really look at it and help people with the problem. As far as sex and love addiction is concerned, uh, Patrick Carnes is the international expert on the subject, and he estimates that the, the incidence of sex, and, sex addiction is about 6% of the population. That 6% are using sex for addictive purposes rather than for pleasure or for happiness or fulfillment. What he says is that in sex addiction, the incidence is about three men to one woman, one woman but the, the incidence in women is rising largely because of the internet where the access is anonymous. And so there are more women becoming sex addicts nowadays than, than previously. There are 12 addictive characteristics, which I won't go through now. If you're interested in them, you can look them up on my website. But these characteristics will define who is an addict and who is not. As far as the sex and love addiction is concerned, what uh, Patrick Carnes has pointed out is that we really need to recognize that all addiction is progressive and destructive. There's no little bit of addiction. It's all progressive and destructive. It's just a matter of when. But we shouldn't penalize everybody just because of the behavior of some people. This is what governments do. They have health warnings on everything. Well, the health warnings meant no, of no interest to me whatever, and even though I'm a doctor. I was smoking 30 cigarettes a day when I was looking after patients on the heart ward. You know, I'm an addict. That's just the way I am. Thank God I, I was never a sex and love addict, so um, that didn't happen. But people would say to me, <laughs> people would say to me sometimes, oh, I wouldn't mind a bit of that. God, Lord. I said, oh, yeah, really? Do you want to know the suicide rate of people with sex and love addiction? It is significant. It's a very high suicide rate. And you can see why. It's because people destroy their own personal relationships if they're sex and love addicts. And the typical example is, like some sex, dear? No, thanks. Or do you mind lying down while I have some? <laughs> no, that is not a close relationship. That's using somebody as a drug. And that's very destructive. And ultimately, you finish up with a lot of very lonely old people. So what we need to do is to find a way of identifying these people. As I said, on my website, you can see how that can be done. But the government still comes out with all these regulations, all these pious hopes that they can show wonderful examples of how moral behavior is going to change the world. No, that's not what it's about. We need to identify those specific individuals who have an addiction problem and treat them appropriately. Then the rest of the population can get on and do what they want, provided, as I said, that it's not damaging other people and that people who are doing something are competent to make adult decisions. The legalization or illegalization of various addictive behaviors, like drugs and so on, is a necessary part, believe it or not, of liberty. 
Because only that way do people accumulate sufficient pain to say, oh, shit, I think I may need to change my behavior. So it's odd that here's me as a libertarian saying that we should keep some things illegal because I'm using it as a medical intervention. Just before I came here, I was dealing with a mother of a, of a young man who's actually not that young. He's 40. But, whew, is, well, compared to some of us, he's getting into a lot of trouble. And what are we going to do for him? Nothing. Why not? Because he's below the radar. He's in work. He's earning a living. He's got a car in the garage. He's got all the rest of it. It's not going to help him. He needs confrontation. As a GP in central London, I had my own private laboratory. So I've looked after a lot of, health, of, of sex workers, of swingers, of sex addicts. My favorite um, sex worker was a, a child psychologist. I thought she had ideal training for the work that she did. She, she was great. I have a lot of time for these people. Because I'm a doctor, damn it. I don't make moral judgments on other people's behavior. However, as an individual, I was married for 48 and a half years until my wife died of a stroke. That was wrong. I'm married again now. And my wife, Pat, who's just here, and I hope that we'll hit the ton, or well, at least the half century, and get to our golden wedding anniversary. I'll be 125, she'll be 70, uh, 123. But why not? Why not? We're young. What I'm saying is, we're happy. And I believe a major part of that is that pornography has played no part in my life, and that addictive substances and processes no longer play a part at all. This is the happiness that I want to share with other people. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Robert Lefevre. I shall be quoting some of your advice to my husband later on. <laughs> um, our second speaker for the motion is Reader in Sexualities and Culture at the University of Sunderland. Her research focuses on the everyday uses of pornography and how people who use it feel that it fits into their lives. She's the author of the first large-scale study of audiences engaging with sexual media and is currently writing up the results of a survey of more than 5,000 respondents. She's the co-editor of the academic quarterly journal Porn Studies. Please welcome to the podium Dr. Clarissa Smith. Thank you. Thanks for that introduction as well. So, um, my, uh, unlike Robert, I have had quite a long history of looking at pornography, and I've done it for 20 years as part of my professional practice. I have a bit of a problem with the debate question as set. Pornography is good for us. Without it, we would be a far more repressed society. I don't, I don't have a problem with this trying to talk about what might be uh, the best ways to understand sexually explicit media. But I do have a problem with the idea that there is a singular thing that we can discuss as pornography and that we can decide on the basis of that discussion whether it's good or bad for us. 
My reasons for that are that first, there is no singular porn industry. We constantly find it talked in those ways, uh, in academic circles, in the media, by politicians, as if there actually exists a singular entity. There is no one porn industry. There are industries, and some of them look much more like your sole trader artist than they do a big-budget studio. What, of course, those uh, singularizations of porn are attempting to do is to condemn the industry by its sheer size. It gets talked about as an undifferentiated mass of greed and that its products all head in the same direction. It's hard to think of any other industry that gets treated in that way, that is condemned just because of its success. And we ought actually to acknowledge that it's it's a presumed success because, in fact, most of the numbers that we have are really rather shaky. We can't be sure. They are estimates. But estimates place the value of the porn industry in the USA at 8 billion and globally at 13 billion. Now, that sounds significant, doesn't it? Except that the USA fast food sector has a value of over 110 billion per year. The largest grossing film of all time, Avatar, grossed 2.7 billion on its own, and Hollywood's global profit exceeds 100 million. Hollywood alone, okay, its global profit exceeds 100 billion per year. So we are not talking about an industry that, like some juggernaut, comes rolling into town and squashes everything in front of it. There are big studios and there are sole operators. There are lots of different kinds of pornography too. There are some who would claim that porn has no generic elements to it, that it's not, it doesn't have its own representational vocabularies, that it has no narratives, it has no art. And I'd say, after 20 years of looking at this stuff, that they're talking out of their hats. There are varieties of pornography, from the most obvious, amateur, alt, queer, straight, those based on practices, orientations, or styles of body, but also diversification in modes of distribution, the free sites online, shared community spaces, magazines, because believe it or not, actually some people still prefer to get their sexy times from a magazine, and actually there are still those people who prefer to find it accidentally in bushes, at, um, in parks and stuff. The porn fairies' deliveries are still looked for by some people. And then there are DVDs, and there are other kinds of productions too. And in DVDs, we've got huge production numbers like Michael Nin's The Four, or punky vignettes like Jack the Zipper's Black Light Beauty, Jizz Lee's Gender Queer, Gender Fuck Alternative Porn, there's Fuck for Forest's Ethical Porn, Miss Naughty's Porn for Women, we could also mention Anna's work, Clown Porn, Furry Porn, Parody Porn. There are all kinds of pornographies out there, and they have their own imperatives, and you'll have noticed, actually, that I haven't actually divided that up into sexual orientations there, and we could do that too. And people make choices about the porn they view. They take the effort to seek out the materials they like. Pornography is meaningful to them. And what is always central to me in the various debates about pornography and its role is that so many claims are made about the people who choose to view it, who consume it. Porn consumers uh, tend to be represented as deviant, slightly suspect, and probably addicted. That comes from an Australian piece of research, a porn report. 
Michael Leahy, the evangelist and author of Porn Nation, has claimed that porn is America's number one addiction. And writing for Psychology's magazine, British journalist Decca Aikenhead has described boys sitting in silence, staring at hardcore pornography in the playground and swapping unbelievable uh, uh, images of astonishing sexual violence as if they were Pokemon cards. Along with this, we have the Australian parenting author, Steve Biddulph, who claims that porn is responsible for one of the most depressed, anxious and lonely generations of young people ever to inhabit the earth. I find it quite interesting that we're in this room, a place where um, medical issues have been discussed for uh, a couple of centuries, and there are very clear parallels here with this discuss, the discourse of uh, porn addiction and porn problems with the 19th century masturbation debates. Okay, and, and actually very clear ones. Sunken-eyed children who skulk in their bedrooms and refuse to speak to their parents. That seems to be most teenagers' behaviour anyway. What's the problem with that? So... None of these claims are actually based on evidence and the consumption of pornography remains a huge gap in our knowledge. We know less about the audiences of pornography than probably any other genre of popular entertainment. And as the introduction said, my own research has tried to get at people's everyday engagements with porn and how they do that and why they do that and how it fits into their lives, how it makes a difference to them. And most recently, that has been through this project that we launched online at pornresearch.org and to which we got more than 5,500 responses. The picture that emerges from that research is seriously at odds with the most familiar representations of pornography audiences. One of the main motives for us in completing that research, I did it with two colleagues, Fiona Atwood and Martin Barker, both of whom are very respected in in the areas of uh, taboo media. Uh, One of the main motives for our research was that uh, porn research has been completely dominated by artificial and highly judgmental ways of investigating and that they simply won't ask ordinary people what they enjoy about porn. It's been very instructive in the last five years to take part in policy debates where everybody talks about pornography and claims never to have looked at it themselves, but knows exactly what it is that every user is doing with it, and to know best what would be the thing to do with them too, right? So there are real problems with this. That kind of research, that kind of talk, judges from afar and effectively presumes consumers to be incompetent and damaged. Okay, so our respondents were incredibly open with us. They were fantastically generous with their time. They told us about their histories and their lives. And what comes out of that is that porn is an important leisure activity for many people. And it is representative of wider changing attitudes to sex, relationships, identity, the body, and the place of technologies in intimate life. Contrary to the press stories, which talk of young people as exposed to the harms of pornography, young people who spoke to us talked about themselves as having histories, experience, and using porn to think about themselves and their real or potential partners in order to come to terms with their own bodily responses to things sexual. Older respondents talked about porn as a means of accessing bodily sensations which which may express forms of nostalgia and attempts to get back to previous kinds of intimacy. 
Porn is not a special case to be thought of separately from other forms of production or consumption. And it's not a a singular form with singular purposes and or effects. There are complex relations between representation, reality and fantasy. And that's one of the most important things that's coming out of our research. is What does fantasy mean to people? These complexities of the relations between the self and the worlds of imagination require more than scaremongering. Like all forms of cultural production, porn contributes, has contributed to our sense of possibilities, personal and individual possibilities, and that is surely one of the ways in which we are less repressed. Thank you, Dr. Clarissa Smith. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I was just thinking it must surely be the only time in the Royal Institution that furry porn has been referenced, or perhaps not. Um, Finally, our second speaker against the motion. She's a feminist author, academic and broadcaster described as the major feminist voice of the 20th century. 
Her ideas have created controversy ever since her book, The Female Eunuch, became a bestseller in 1970. She's now a special fellow of Newnham Column, Cambridge. Please welcome Professor Germaine Greer. I suppose I ought to confess that uh, I have been a pornographer, uh, completely failed, uh, wanted to replace the agenda of screw with a non-sadistic agenda of suck. We produced seven numbers, I think, of our magazine in Amsterdam. And as a way of changing its uh, sadistic exploitation of, of young people uh, who posed willingly for us naked, I suggested that all of us ugly old editors should be photographed naked. The only one of us who had any kind of public profile was me, so I had to think hard about how to do the photograph, and I had to make sure that it couldn't be ripped off by the commercial soft porn industry, so uh, I had already explained to Playboy, who offered me a gatefold, that I would do it if I could stand with my back to the camera and look at the lens through my knees. <laughs> it took them a while to figure that out. Because, as usual, they'd forgotten that women have anuses. You might have noticed that. Um, and so they said they thought they weren't ready for that. But Suck was ready for that, and I did do it. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't change the iron reality of what is, as has been explained, a business. My fellow editors used the picture as page three. They blew it up to the full broadsheet size. They cut uh, a signature off one of my letters, pasted it on the bottom as if it was a piece of gratuitous exhibitionism on my part. And they were never photographed themselves. What I was trying to do then was to change pornography. I was trying to make it not sadistic. I don't know that we can do this until we liberate human sexuality. Most of its expression will be sadistic. And commercial porn is no different. It's predicated on, pre on penetration. Whether the penetration is of women, men or animals or children, the person who is penetrated is degraded by the interaction. Until we actually change our own sexual culture, we can't change that. We can't change that by pretending that it's been changed. The motion, in my view, is upside down. Pornography doesn't make us less repressed. Pornography is a way of making money out of the fact that we are repressed. Not for nothing is the cum shot known as the money shot. Pornography, we get confused when we talk about it as a style or a genre. I'm in favour of erotic art. I am desperate to find a way to reincorporate sexuality in the narrative that we give of our lives. And it's virtually impossible. Because for some reason, it gets hived off into this special realm. Pornography is not a style or a genre. It's a business. The target customer uh, 
regardless of whether the depicted act involves women, men, children or animals, is male. The need for pornography arises from our sexual incapacity. Now, I'm not going to do a men are from Mars and women are from Venus number here, but we have a problem of misunderstanding each other and having sexualities that are not symmetrical. Pornography perpetuates the stereotypic notion of sexual intercourse as essentially penetrative. The penis is rock hard, even though in most of the porn films I've seen, and I was a judge at the Wet Dream Film Festival in Amsterdam in 1972, (laughs) in most of the films I've been made to watch, the penis is distinctly rubbery. Now that we have video, hard disk video cameras that can record seven hours without changing the mag, maybe it's not as rubbery as it used to be. Maybe we can actually stay with it till we get to the money shot. But the other problem is that the behaviour of the female, usually in these interactions, has been laid down God knows when. I've also been a judge of video discs made by celebrities in which Practically every woman made the little animal cries that say, your cock is giving me as much pleasure as it's giving you, which is a lie. (laughs) Quite the most tragic of these fairly tragic items was the one made by the very successful woman now known as Katie Price. It was quite the saddest porn video I think I've ever seen. Now, if we're talking about how people learn how to take care of each other, one of the big problems with the porn that teenagers are watching is it doesn't give any importance to the condom. It doesn't bring it into the interaction, probably because it's practically impossible. Uh, We pretend that everything's going fine, because we don't know how often the morning after pill is required. We don't know how many of our young women are having unprotected sex. We know they all think it's a long-term partner, and we know that they're nearly always wrong. But even subtler than that is the fact that pornography fetishizes the body. Now, it may be great to be told, look, you're an amputee. Put in amputee plus porn, and you'll discover there's a bunch of people out there who get off on your stump that isn't going to be frightfully good news. What you're hoping is that they get off on you. You don't want to be told that you now have become a subclass of a fetish. Likewise, you've got one breast three times bigger than the other. You really want someone to make love to you for that reason? Women always believe it's love. They always rely on words. One of the things about pornography is that it's mostly speechless. The thing you remember is not what was done, but what was said. Pornography postulates limitless male potency, which can't be arrived at in the real world. But the really sinister thing about it is that it makes sex easy. It is the psychological equivalent of convenience food. It provides easy, ready-made fantasy to be used in the mechanical relief of sexual tension. The relief is superficial. Masturbation is like housework. It's only to be done again. Repetitive, meaningless, like convenience food. You stuff food in your mouth whenever you think you might want it, but it doesn't satisfy. You are never replete. You are never hungry. Real encounters carry with them 
the possibility of rejection, of humiliation, of being deceived, exploited, of being impotent. They are adventures. Sex is a blood sport. We approach each other with trepidation. As intimacy intensifies, the possibility of hurt becomes greater. We encounter jealousy, the most debilitating illness of all. Pornography is your paper doll, the gal that other fellows cannot steal. Pornography won't betray you. It won't dump you. Sex is as difficult as conversation, with as great a propensity for going wrong. Pornography replaces the uncertainty of real encounters with real people with stereotypical fantasy. Relief of tension is assured, but ecstasy is out of reach, out of sight, unimaginable. Passion is a concept emptied of significance. Commitment is not an issue. The sexual revolution didn't liberate sex. It liberated pornography. Ready-made sexual fantasy appeared on every bookstand. A huge industry developed, much huger, I think, than we realise. Pornography is part of the marketing of prostitution, and it bleeds back into real life. Reality becomes an unpleasant surprise. Little girls are trying to assuage the anxieties of their young boyfriends. They're desperate to have a full Brazilian aged 13. We need not commercial pornography, which exists to suck the money out of pockets of men, but an integration of carnality in the narrative of daily life. We need to rediscover or maybe reinvent intimacy. Thank you very much, Professor Germain Greer. Now, before I sit down and we open uh, questions to the floor, I'd just like to reveal the results of the pre-vote. So before the debate, as you were all coming in, the results are for the motion, 45%. Against the motion, 22%. And don't know, 33%. So with that in mind, um, please do uh, raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question. Thank you. I'll take a question from this lady over here. Um, I'm, I'm against the motion. Um, I just wonder, my, que my question is, how do we do it practically? I, I, when we look at democracy... <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's quite funny, isn't it? Great, thank you. Yeah, so your, your question is really about legislation. Yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you. One more from up here and then we'll come to the panel. Hello, my name's Matthew Garner. I'm in favour of the motion. <laughs> um, a brief comment, uh, mostly focusing on what our final speaker, uh, Professor Greer, had to say. The concluding remark you made was in connection with rediscovering a, a range of carnality and, and sexual expression and a, and a kind of a more democratic and, and perhaps less uh, oppressive, uh, in your view, uh, view of human expression of sexuality. 
I can't help feeling that perhaps you may be a little out of date in regard to what is actually out there in the world of pornography these days. I believe the other speakers in favour of the motion uh, highlighted the fact that there is a huge range of amateur pornography. There is a huge uh, drive amongst certain sectors of the population to record and to celebrate their sexuality. And if you are looking at what pornography actually exists, then you'll find that it isn't just this... I'm afraid I don't really recognise this notion that you have of the, uh, the subjugation of women as a default, uh, the focus on penis and vagina sex, the idea that women are inherently and always degraded and, and submissive in this. I just Thank don't you. think you're up to date on that regard. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, picking up on Peter's point, um, I'd like to put this to Anna Arrowsmith. Um, as uh, Professor Jermaine Greer said, pornography is a way of making money out of the fact that we are repressed. So could you say something in response to the question about commercialism? Well, actually, I think the thing is that uh, porn is actually part, as you mentioned, um, swinging. <laughs> But uh, I was going to be uh, use a metaphor and say vehicular um, sex as well, or shall I just say dogging? I mean, it's happening, you know, everywhere. It's, porn is just part of what I would call a uh, sort of silent sexual revolution that's going on. And I would disagree with Jermaine saying that it didn't free people. I think, you know, it didn't free people equally, but we have found, especially um, in the last 10 to, to 15 years, women are getting... I mean, swinging, if you look at the industry, is really... Um, well, if you call it an industry, is really run by a, a female desire um, to, to, to sort of uh, meet other men. And so I actually think that porn is just part of that, and, that, and a lot of it isn't for money. I mean, you know, I people aren't making money out of dogging. And... Um, <laughs> People are not making money out of this. It's not about money. Well, the difficulty is, and we said something about this before, the difficulty is about the definition. Dogging is not pornography. Uh, being involved in actual sexual activity is not pornography. Pornos, prostitute, graphos, I, or however it goes in Greek, I write. Um, we've got to be sure what this is. I mean... That's why I chose... It's not sexual activity. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the creation of a kind of literature, film, etc., etc. Always at one remove. That's what makes it safe. Mm -hmm. Going with a prostitute involves you entering into her social milieu, taking a risk, all kinds of risks. She lives in a very dangerous environment, unless she's a very fortunate kind of upper-class, expensive prostitute. Going there is one kind of adventure... Reading about it, pretending, seeing a picture of her means that you can, in fantasy, enter into that completely non-committal arrangement without running any personal risk. Now, ultimately, we've got to be prepared to countenance risk in personal relationships. Mm -hmm. They're risky things. You get hurt. You have to persevere. You have to understand that this person can throw you right off beam when you think you're getting somewhere with her or him because of something that is said or something that yeah. is done or because of what's happened to that person before. Mm -hmm. Sex is really difficult and the problem with pornography is it makes it seem easy. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dr. Smith, Dr. Oh, Smith wanted to say something quickly. Yeah, I, I wanted to pull back on, on two of the, the points that were made. Actually, there's a lot of assumptions here that the only kinds of pornography that exist are heterosexual, that that's what we're talking about. And the fact is that 
actually, there's an awful lot of porn out there that speaks to sexual minorities and does so in ways be precisely because they are repressed and precisely because they do need to be told that it is okay to do things um, in, in ways that are not validated within the wider culture. And that's one of the ways in which actually it is very clear that porn has, it may not be responsible for our toleration, our, our understanding now of alternative sexualities, but it has certainly gone hand in hand with that increasing toleration. And I think sometimes the absolute literalness of the de definition of porn as the writing of whores actually misses, or prostitutes, misses absolutely what is going on in pornography and the varieties of it and the ways that it speaks to communities. And that's actually the point about the dogging sites or the um, swinging sites, is that it's about community and intimacies within those communities. If you're outside it, you don't understand it. Mm. But that doesn't mean to say you know anything about those people. Right? Mm. And we should be clear that we are talking about people whose life choices may not be the same as ours, and they are no less appropriate and, and, and good for all of that, mm. and intimate, and mm. intimate, and carnal, and all of those lovely things that um, we might all want mm. for ourselves. Can I come to uh, Dr. Lefevre for a response to the question about legislation? What, what can we practically do? Uh, probably nothing. <laughs> um, this, is, this is a great fallacy of government. They believe that there are laws which will change society. Society changes itself in time. And I don't think that laws against pornography are going to do anything else but just drive it further underground or <coughs> wherever. I don't think it will actually change human behaviour. Right. I think it should be clear that um, nobody has been in favour of censorship of pornography. Or what we've been doing is opposing the motion that pornography is good for us. Mm -hmm. Lots of things are around that are not good for us at all, but they're not illegal. And we don't want to make pornography illegal either. Uh, because, ironically, I can remember when it was illegal and you could pay an awful lot of money for the most disgusting postcards of... <laughs> of Asian children being fucked by black sailors. You could buy them in Soho for, like, 40 quid. These dreadful things. And um, that would be my sort of snobbish thing about most of the pornography I've been privileged to see, is that it's boring, it's repetitive, it's dreary. It, there's never any conversation. You don't get anywhere. Okay, I'm um, it's as boring as wanking. Okay. Can I, can I take some more right? questions and I'll come to Rebecca Anna? Thank you. Right. Um, I'm going to take some questions from... Can I take a question from up here, please? Say your name and whether you're for or against the motion. My name's Tessa Grindle. Um, two points. One is pornography is good for us. Um, we need to define who us is um, because we don't all know what's good for us and the children especially don't know what's good for them because they haven't made up their minds. And secondly, this point is... The written, the written word and the visual image are supposed to be both educative and informative. And if doctors aren't informed, how can we expect children to be informed if we're not teaching them something in schools? Thank you. To here. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Simon. I'm against the motion, albeit somewhat flaccidly. Um, I... <laughs> 
I, Again, um, thanks for sharing. When I, when I was, when I was uh, at school, not long ago, in fact, um, pornography for me was top shelf. I'd send a friend in, usually taller, who would get it. And it, or RTL, the German channel, maybe a little later. And that somewhat shaped my um, view of, of sex sadly early on. And, and I suppose the point I want to bring in is that people who are of school age now have access to internet where... The, the normal thing, and you've spoken about quite sort of minority uh, pornography, is like Gonzo is 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 quite is really hardcore and unpleasant. And I've come across it. I've talked about it with friends of a similar age. Um, we spoke about it last week, and one guy was like, "Well, it's affected the way I now approach sex with women, particularly in brief encounters." Um, and I want to sort of ask, do you think that this type of porn that is everywhere now, that anyone can get to with a click of a mouse very easily, could impact, will impact, does impact the psychology and the attitudes towards sex of young people and young men in particular? Thank you. Gentleman behind you. Hi there. Um, I have two uh, questions. Uh, when I was um, studying uh, and was looking at trying to get some work while to support my studies, uh, I looked, looked at a few advertisements on Gumtree for becoming uh, a porn star or whatever. And uh, um, I didn't see it especially as uh, being exploited. I thought about it. But then I just um, felt that if the video gets out and uh, somehow my dad comes to know about it, uh, he won't be particularly very happy about it. Um, so I wanted to ask, why do we have... And there was a lot of fear when I really visualized that the video is out. Everybody knows that I have been in a porn movie and the way people are looking at me and all the paranoia with it. Why do we have this kind of attitude, this kind of stigma towards a sexual act which, is, um, which we wouldn't have been here without it? Um, Dr. Smith, I wonder if you could answer the question about... Uh, whether exposure to pornography affects how we approach sex. I think the question was in particular about young men. Well, I think, I think there are a number of issues that are tied up there. I don't, porn isn't, um, doesn't claim for itself a role as a sex educator, but unfortunately it has acquired um, that role. And some of it actually can be very good. The, the idea that we can see lots of different bodies, lots of different practices, lots of different ways of, of dealing with bodies... Uh, is good because, actually, within schools, there is little or no comprehensive sex and relationship education. The problem is, of course, that we've got uh, a government who uh, wants to be seen to be doing something about young men and their, their uh, ability to view porn online, but isn't prepared to put his money where its mouth is and to think about how we might offer sex education, healthy sex education to children throughout their school years. And that would be about how do we foster intimacy? How do we deal with problems like jealousy between couples or, you know, amongst friendship groups? The fact is that, you know, kids are very able to understand questions around jealousy because they feel that very much as young children playing around toys. It doesn't have to be about sex, but we refuse to actually acknowledge that there are these very deep and problematic feelings that young people may encounter as they grow older. 
and that some of those will come through sex. And we have sold the pass to kids in terms of giving them decent sex education. The only thing they get is the berating about it's, you could get a, a sexually transmitted infection, you could get pregnant, people will lose respect for you. There is no sense of the ways in which there might be pleasures in sexuality, that there might be something really rich and marvellous that would come to you. And that, of course, that might be why you might think, I'm not going to wear a condom on this occasion because, you know, that would be to break the mood. We, we are too much in love with the idea of, of love and without any real sense of what it might mean to equip our kids for encountering porn and sex. And uh, I've got to say that gonzo is one of the most visible genres, but it is not the predominant genre. It okay. has to be repeated Thank over you. and over again. But um, there we are. To take the point about why we stigmatise porn stars, obviously you work with them mm. on a daily basis. Do you feel that they are stigmatised? Um, well, I set up my website, weconsent.org, because I think all sex, people that work in the sex industry, whether it's lap dancers... Um, sex workers, whatever, we are all facing stigma and we're all facing uh, various uh, backlashes. And if you, I, I actually trawl the web um, for, for news every day and you just see it left, right and centre. We are kind of divided and ruled. And if you actually bring them all together and you're getting one story about lap dancing, then one about stripper and stuff like this, we are getting it left, right and centre and it's all for the same kind of moral reasoning that sort of sees people that work in the sex industry as... Um, I'm going to talk about it in my last minute, so I won't go on. But I would say that the only way forward... I mean, I, I think the argument about anti-pornography sits on the what pe most people would know as the whore-Madonna di uh, dichotomy. It's, it's, it's a pedestal. And women who uh, fulfil certain roles that are useful for men, for instance, good mother, nice wife, you know, non-competitive work friend, etc., are put on these kind of pedestals... And when they, um, and when a woman falls off that, for instance, for, for being, you know, sexually promiscuous or a, ba a bad mother or a bad mother as a father is sometimes, and stuff like this, you get hostile sexism. And I think the whole argument about anti-pornography is saying, please don't t treat us as whores because we are Madonnas. And I think the point is that we need to see people that work in the sex industry as, for instance, myself, you know, I'm a porn director, but I stood for Parliament, or I'm doing a PhD. You've got sex workers who are good mothers, you know, good friends. You can, people in porn stars I know are very faithful to their partners but they work every day doing porn it's, a, it's about breaking that up and saying that women especially are very mixed and we are both okay, we don't need to you. choose and um, briefly Dr Lefebvre I wonder if you could ask the, the question that's posed um, by the motion when we say us who do we mean mm -hmm. by us who are you thinking of us when you um, address the motion today pornography is good for us is it good for me I, I don't know I don't do it um is it good for you? I certainly don't know. <laughs> if you find it's good for you, then bully for you. But whether it's good for us as a society is a different matter. Does it make us happier? I do know from the medical perspective that the most significant health factor of all is far more than giving up smoking. It leaves that in the shade. It's having a long-term close personal relationship. Now, does, pornog <laughs> does pornography help that? Well, it appears it, it may do in some people, and, and, and fine. But does it in general? I would doubt it. 
Okay. So let's remind ourselves of the results uh, before the debate took place. You voted 45% for the motion, 22% against the motion, 33% undecided. After the debate, you voted 50% for the motion, 44% against and only now 6% undecided. Yes. So. We then have to... Well, I declare the motion carried. Anyway, very, very close, interesting results. So... Thank you to all of you for being such a fantastic uh, participative audience. Um, But please give a warm round of applause to all of our panellists for their fantastic contribution. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.